0: This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder.
1: Object to the test.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Felder Report. Uh, each week, I go through a ton of reading and research, uh, charts. And uh, what I do is on Saturday mornings, I send out a free email report, where I Just pick out just a handful of these things. The few things that I found most valuable during my week's worth of reading and research that can be maybe a link, a chart. Usually it's just, uh, you know, four or five things. Uh, If this is something that you'd be interested in receiving, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage. You can sign up and be good to go. My guest for this episode is Jerry Parker, and Jerry was one of the original turtle traders. Uh, This was an elite group selected by legendary trader Richard Dennis to learn his trend-following strategies and actually take over uh, a couple million dollars of his money uh, and manage it using these strategies for him. Um, So Jerry learned uh, trend-following from the best in the business and has been practicing it on his own now. For 30 years. Um, Jerry is a a brilliant guy and in this conversation we get into what he believes made him stand out among over a thousand candidates, uh, what it was about trend following that really appealed to him, and what it is uh, about trend following that should appeal to individual investors. Jerry even gets into how individual investors should think about uh, implementing trend following in their own portfolios. It was a real treat for me to be able to pick his brain for about an hour, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500?
1: Because they're sheep, and sheep get slaughtered.
0: Jerry Parker, welcome to the show. It's really an honor for me to have you here, and thanks for doing this.
1: Oh, Jesse, thanks for having me. looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, you know it's uh, you've somebody been somebody that since I started this podcast, I thought you know I've had your name on my list. I definitely want to get Jerry on the podcast because um, you are an investor, unlike anyone else that I've talked to so far um, on since I started this show. And but before we get into that, I I, I read somewhere where you said Richard Dennis rescued you from a normal life. And before we get into, you know, your investment process and all that kind of stuff, who was Jerry Parker before you ran into Richard Dennis?
1: I'm prone to use extreme words like that. So, um, but it was sort of a rescue from a, a typical life in a small town to being a CPA and graduating from uh college with an accounting degree and doing audits and tax work and, uh, I knew pretty quickly that that's not what I wanted to do long-term. I wanted to do something more fun and uh, creative and the markets. I mean, I was intrigued by the markets, loved the markets, um, watched Wall Street Week, Marty Zweig, um, read books and newsletters, and um, yeah, immersed myself in, into that field. And fortunately, when I was practicing accounting for just two or three years out of college before I left... Uh, I had some free time and I used it to f- try to figure out my worldview and philosophy and uh, what works and what would I be, would be good, good doing in that particular field.
0: And so if it wasn't, um, uh, you know, something you studied in college, I mean, you said you had a, you got an accounting degree. What was it that first got you interested in finance? Because it sounds like you had a passion for it before you even ran into um, R- Richard Dennis.
1: You know, probably the old cliche of competition and uh, getting a daily report every day on how you're doing and putting together a plan and a game, sort of a games mentality of approaching things. I don't know. I I definitely first heard of uh, technical trading and trend and price, looking at prices and charts and moving averages, and I was like, that is me, and I never spent one second uh thinking that, oh, value, and, I mean, even though, ironically, I was looking at balance sheets and income statements uh, from an account, as an accountant, I was not interested in that at all, and thought, uh, you know, the lack of uh, a subjectivity, I thought that was really good, you know, these are objective rules um, that we're going to be using, we can test them, we can look at them, uh, and, uh, you know, there's, and so I thought that was just, that really suited my character, Yeah.
0: Well, that's. It seems like that's something critical to discover. I, you know, it's one thing I th- I, you know, I hear from a lot of people trying to copy other people's investment, uh, you know, styles and things. And I I think you make a great point in that it's it's really critical to find something that suits you and that really speaks to you and some part of your personality and your values. It, but it's also really interesting to me that you had a background in you know financial statement analysis uh, and value investing didn't appeal to you. Well, I mean, what what about it? To you seemed like you know that just doesn't doesn't fit me.
1: I remember looking at charts early on and, and looking at trends, and of course, uh, looking at a chart tr- uh, trend or flipping through charts and seeing trend after trend doesn't really tell you one thing. Uh, your your brain will look at see more patterns than really exist, and the computer, as it goes back and does a back test and looks at uh, rules, and applies these rules to actual price data. is very brutal. And it comes back with an answer that 's not quite what you were hoping for most of the time, so uh, but I think just that allure i 'm not i can 't really remember um, but I remember getting an interview at uh work for Richard Dennis where I got my big break, and I had studied trend and charts and Thought that was just the greatest thing, and I and I also thought, well, this is going to be a great opportunity. I hope it's trend following, <laughs> yeah. so I wouldn't leave out the possibility of going to uh, Omaha and answering the ad and hoping it was trend following, but it did not turn out to be that, and had been Warren Buffett or someone equally as talented or or talented as uh, to in value investing and I would have possibly changed right then and there and said, Oh my gosh, what a genius person. What an amazing opportunity. I'm not going to blow this. Uh, so it was kind of interesting and lucky that it all worked out the way I was hoping it would.
0: Well, that's, yeah, that's right. Let's take a step back. And and so you were actually looking for a career change. Is that, is, is that, is that how you came across the, uh, you saw Richard Dennis put an ad in the wall street journal, uh, for you know, like a uh, a trader training program, is that right?
1: That's right. Uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. We're going to hire fifteen people, teach them how to trade, and we're going to give them a million dollars of our own money um, <clears throat> after the training period and see what happens, sink or swim. And I thought this was really a great idea. I was definitely looking f- to move on and f- and had been rejected from a more a traditional. Broker jobs or trading, you know, trading assistant type jobs in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And so then I was very disappointed and that I didn't get those jobs. And then all of a sudden, the fall of 83, I got the greatest job in the world. Didn't really deserve it necessarily. Didn't, no one should expect such a thing to happen, even if you're prepared for, uh, to maximize an opportunity. It's, uh, you know, that's all you can do. Be prepared to maximize your opportunity if it happens, uh, but it's unlikely that's going to happen. In the, one of the chapters in uh, uh, Taleb's book, um, I believe uh, Black Swan is one of the uh, paragraphs in it, is um, put yourself in a, high, in a likely situation to have someone change your world. Go to cocktail parties in New York City and talk to people. And oh, what great advice! You know, read the one ads of the Wall Street Journal. Who even reads those one ads? Uh, well, I happened to that particular day, thankfully.
0: Yeah, and and what do you think? Um, what you know, for the first thing I think of is you know, thank goodness that you you didn't uh, get accepted in any of those earlier jobs. It's funny how things work out that way sometimes. Um, but uh, what do you think it was? How many? How, first of all, how many people applied for these these
1: spots? According to uh, the Richard Dennis, it was uh, 1,000 people each in 1983, and they did it again in 1984. So I was a part of the 1983 group of uh, 12 people, and then in 1984, they hired eight people, and um, they probably interviewed 50 each year, so I was one of 50 who got an interview and went to Chicago with lots of notes and ideas crammed into my head, which, of course, I forgot all of that when I went in for my short interview. <laughs> well,
0: and and so, do you have any uh, idea of how they? I mean, what do you think made you stand out?
1: Well, that's a good question. Oh, uh, two things. Um, um, when we when we sent the resumes in, they sent out. A true/false test. So it was 100 true/false questions, um, and I think they wanted to hire people who did did well on this test, and people who did poorly. You know, they didn't really care. They just wanted to see with hire different types of people. Uh, and the test was a little bit about trading, but uh, trading philosophy, psychology. How do you think about life? Uh, one of the questions was true or false: It takes money to make money. True or false, a trader should love their losses. And um, so they were looking for people who maybe were different. And uh, so I did really well on the test. They told me that I had the highest score out of a thousand people. Um, and it was just because I was really into that. I had studied, uh, Marty, uh, reading Marty Zwag books, gave me my first um, idea about trend following and seeing Marty Zweig on Wall Street Week. Uh, so, this, once again, I thought this was the greatest thing ever. Trend following, I thought it was fantastic. So, uh, I was bought at hook line and sinker, and it, it took me, you know, fifteen minutes to uh, to really like it and, and understand the basics. Um, and then when I had the interview, I I don't know. I was probably full of myself. Um, one of the questions they ask everyone is. You know, on a scale from zero to 100%, how much do you think you already know about trading? And I said, well, probably 90%, right? Which is sort of laughable and dumb. (laughs) And uh, I think one person did more, like 99%. And Liz Chaval, the only woman uh, they hired, she said, you know, close to zero. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting little study there on the male-female way of of, uh, answering questions and being humble, which... The guys have a tendency to fail, Um, but I think I said something to Rich like, uh, whether you hire me or not, I will become a trader, you know, so what does that mean? More bragging and overly aggressiveness, Uh, but I think he was kind of impressed by that, and I've thought about that statement, which sort of begs the question, uh, what kind of trader would you have been, which really uh, could be a sad story because... the type of knowledge that we were given and, uh, the tutoring and the environment that we were put in, uh, was just un, you know, unparalleled and, uh, reading books or being told rules or figuring out rules on your own is really not the same as experiencing those four years, uh, with those genius people and, uh, having capital allocated to me. And if we lost money, uh, You know, we were following the rules. If we were following the rules, there was no problem. And that's sort of a pretend environment when you get out into the real world with clients who don't really care bottom line if you're following your rules or not, as long as you make me money. So the first four years really laid the groundwork for all of us to um, have a different experience that was going to be very beneficial for the future. When the going gets tough, you can always uh, think back on that uh, mentoring and uh, the support that we got. We literally lost a ton of money in the first six months, and their response was to give us more. You're following the rules. You're doing what we told you to do. Uh, Full speed ahead. Here's more money. And, of course, then that uh, rest of 1984 was very, very positive returns. Yeah, well,
0: let's let's, – back up a second. I mean, this sounds like, you know, an amazing program and I, I haven't heard of anything, you know, even similar. Um, but, uh, so, so Richard Dennis was very successful, you know, commodity trader, Chicago, and was he looking to replace himself? Well, I mean, what was the, what was the, the, the uh, I guess the intended outcome here before the, you know, before you even started trading and stuff, what was, what was he, what was he looking for?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, that that uh, that question and others like why did they do this program? People have debated back and forth. I'm pretty sure it had nothing to do with a bet or, or trading places or a bet. Saying uh, one person says I think we can teach trading, the other person says I'm not so sure. I doubt if it had much to do with it. You know, they had good resumes. They had smart people, um, and all, and we had to follow the rules, and so following these type of rules, um, it didn't, you know, the level of intelligence, uh, wasn't critical, although they had tilted it a little bit in their favor to have people who, you know, had, uh, some intelligence and more than average, let's say. But, uh, I think there was a couple of things that I heard firsthand, which are not that controversial. One would be, uh, to add value, you know, we're going to give you these rules, and uh, we're going to lay them out philosophically—a two-week course—and then specifically rules one through ten to buy and sell, to enter and to exit, and portfolio management and taking losses, small losses, and letting profits run, and things like that. But it was very intense and very in depth, and it was a lot about here's how you can evolve over the future, and it's not just here are the rules today, but you want to stay in business for 30 or 40, 50 years. So things will change. Uh, so, but what we want you to do is um, give us some good feedback, some, uh, flair. Flair was a word <clears throat> that they used. Um, please give us your, any ideas and we'll research those, back test those, you know, you're using our systems and our ideas. Maybe you could uh, give us some, uh, some of yours, um, and that didn't really pan out as well as I think they had hoped it would. The, the way it was set up, um, we were all in one room, and so we were all listening to each other, <laughs> who was doing what, and uh, that sort of made us all want to do something similar. And we felt like that there was too much risk, probably, in deviating too much from the rules uh, the downside was too great, and maybe the um, the benefit we we'd have still accrue the same benefit by uh, doing what rich wanted us to do and being loyal to him and not trying to be too crazy uh, so we I don't think we added much flair uh, and much discretion uh positive discretion, and then I think uh, we felt very beholden. To trading the way we were taught, and and uh, not blowing up what a, a great opportunity, and probably Rich felt like that he could be less wedded to his own systems if he felt like it. So maybe having the turtles trade a sum of money strictly by the book uh, would be a compliment to he and others in the firm, maybe not having to do such a thing or not even desiring to do such a thing. So it was, uh, the, it would be nice to have a certain sum of money that's strictly by the book.
0: Gotcha. And, and the name, the turtles, was that something they called you? Where'd that name come from?
1: Well, you know, early on you're, um, 12 people in a room and, uh, you're trying to come up with a nickname for yourself. <laughs> you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Uh, this elite group, uh, that sometimes didn't look that elite. Uh, So we came up with a lot of names, uh, the 12 disciples, uh, the apostles. uh, And then evidently nothing stuck. So evidently Rich was traveling and wherever he was, he saw a turtle farm where they farm turtles or raised turtles. And one of his buddies said, hey, that's kind of like you raising traders back in Chicago. And so that's kind of the turtles. All of a sudden one day, you know, we'd get a, we were placing orders over the telephone to the floor. Uh, And one day somebody must've said, uh, Hey, you guys are called turtles now. We're like, okay, fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not, not quite as cool as the apostles or anything, but it does make sense. Um, And so you said that you said the strategies that he had or or the rules that he gave you guys were pretty complicated, but um, this was really, was this your first experience with like trading on a trend following uh,
1: program? It was definitely my first experience trading, Trading, um, but not thinking about trend. I um, read some books as well, and I was pretty open-minded as a young person. And I remember before I got the job, reading a book about futures. And I was like, hmm, I don't really understand what this is about, but futures... This opens up an avenue to currencies and commodities. That's got to be pretty pretty decent. I mean, it's more diversification. I instinctively thought that's got to be good. Diversification is probably a good idea. Uh, shorts as well. Oh, definitely shorts. I could definitely see how profiting from things that go down in price uh, from a pure profit point of view would be desirable and uh, probably pretty good idea for diversification as well. So I talked to so many people over the years and try to convince people to invest you know, with our firm and here's what we do and here's how we do it, that you know, usually you walk away and you're just like not going to get money from these people and you are usually going to sort of say to yourself, I just don't understand why I can't explain this better. Why can't they just understand you know, what we're doing? It seems so obvious to me. And uh, And I think it is. To some people, they sort of get it and like it initially, just like me. And I thought this was the greatest thing ever. No one has taught, told me really anything, uh, you know, unique about it or give me any tremendous insights about it. But I think this has got to be fantastic. And then to go up there and, and get a job and work for these guys and, who were just geniuses and uh, had really put the work in, you know, the, developed the algorithms, did the math and did the computer piece and then also had extensive experience actually trading on the floor, putting all three of those pieces together, uh, the math, the back test, the computer. And what's, what's reality when you go and try to execute trades in the futures markets? I think that's a big edge that they had versus uh, purely academic, that person who had never been involved with uh, markets at all.
0: Right right and 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 so well let's let's try and you said you have sometimes have a hard time explaining or or convincing people of the power of trend following let's what how do you how do you explain trend following to just the average investor
1: well i think it's less is more i think if you don't want to understand it you won't under, you won't like it you won't understand it um And so I think it's, uh, you know, a few things going forward. It's, you know, we're taking small losses. And I think that's probably a really good idea to limit your losses, proper money management. You've heard a million hedge fund people talk about that. Uh, Certainly, diversification is a key. Uh, Currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long, shorts. We can put together a portfolio that's very diverse then momentum, you know, does momentum work? Can you just purely look at a, a price data and create a pretty simple? I didn't say simple earlier; I said intense. So, but I guess to some degree, the entries and exits are sort of moving averages or breakouts. Um, but uh, you know, is this momentum? Has it worked? Is it going to work in the, in the future? Uh, are you okay with forty percent winning trades, or you know that's you know kind of a a bummer, kind of a downer that uh, most of the trades are losers uh, a very small percentage, five to ten percent would make all of your profit. Uh, it's kind of a tough equation to enjoy on a daily weekly monthly basis, but it does make a little bit of sense that you would think that successful trading. Would investing would be hard and difficult, and not cater to our desire as humans to make one percent a month? And uh, certainly, you've got to make have more than fifty percent winning trades to uh, to be profitable. That makes no sense. That you would sit back and take all these losses and all this pain and drawdowns and uh, lack of positive reinforcement to wait for five or ten percent of the profits to uh, five, five to ten percent of the trades to make all your profit. So, and in, in a nutshell, I just remember sitting there in my office in Richmond, Virginia, going, here's the answer right here and now. Do the, small, do the big winners pay for those losers? That's it right there. And uh, so you do the research, you do the back test, you live through it. And, yeah, it seems that for the past 30, 40 years, for me anyways, my big winning trades paid for my losing trades. Nowadays, I'm tempted uh, for the first time uh, maybe you know, in a long – ever pretty much over the past five or six years to sort of ask another similar question, uh, a bottom line sort of rude question, which is are stocks superior? It certainly looks like it. I didn't think that. I'd never seen that before. But we've had just an extended period for trend-following CTAs and managed futures to really have to wonder uh, – how much longer do we get punished for our tremendous amount of diversification because uh, it does seem like stocks are pretty darn special and have these great trends and keep going up and up and up and defy logic and wisdom and uh, valuations and uh which is you know what you'd expect from just following trends the the cTAs look really smart when it looks like um, you know when people can't really understand why the markets are doing what they're doing, the CTAs blindly follow these trends. You know, we would have been the only ones to be long the tech stocks in the late 90s, short oil at at 90, and riding it, rode it all the way down to 20, staying long the bonds as they approach 0% rates. So that's what we're known for. What we're good at is uh, when odd, crazy things start to happen, we just follow trends.
0: And and when you talk, when you you were talking about your big winners, really, what you're trying to accomplish there is using technical indi- indicators to help you capture the 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 meat of uh, of a big move in one direction or the other, to you know, upside or the downside. I mean, that's that's how I think a trend following is that is that am I, am I close there.
1: <laughs> well, that's exactly right, and not uh, another good thing about it is it it, uh, doesn't make sense from, say, from a mathematical point of view or from a performance point of view, theoretically or uh, actually to limit uh, the, or to have a cap on what you think uh, the market's going to do. So uh, just if the market breaks below your moving average exit, uh, then you get out. But do your best to ignore the fundamentals or even more so the headlines uh, the headlines that purport to be fundamentally driven, uh, try to not pay attention to those. And if you get nervous, uh, hang in there and don't exit prematurely. In fact, uh, part of our training, which I think has sort of been lost over the years for most, uh, CTAs was a heavy dose of contrary opinion. And, um, one of the ways that we used to utilize what we call contrary opinion would be something like uh, if you were in a situation where the market, uh, the, the mood of the market, let's say the stock market, was particularly bullish like now. And uh, the market was bullish. And uh, the uh, trend was strong, uptrend like now. And then if uh, you get into a taxi and people say, um, how about those stocks you know then you're like oh my gosh and uh the lowest form of the headline so the new york times would not be as good as like your local paper even that local paper was talking about stocks and how wonderful they were and then if you had a uh fun uh a report come out gdp or employment or something that should send the stock market higher and it actually the market started going lower that would be a good time to sort of maybe exercise some discretion Uh, part a little bit from your strict rules and have some fun by uh, when the fundamentals and the sort of technicals disagree, then that's, you want to kind of do whatever the market is doing. So um, we never wanted the fundamentals and the technicals to agree. We always wanted them to disagree and we would uh, feel more confident to follow the trend.
0: Yeah, I mean it's kind of like that uh, old Wall Street adage of you know the market climbs a wall of worry, um, you know yeah you don't want everything to to agree because then it's tough to uh, you know Howard Mark says you have to have a non consensus view to make money in the markets if you agree with what's it's you know what the market says it's already priced in and there's there's little opportunity to make money but you mentioned it's you know it seems like uh, stocks are. Um, uh, well, t- t- tell me again, what, what, were you, what were you saying about stocks there? Because I think you said something like, you know, uh, about stocks being uh, better for trend following, or were you saying just kind of a buy and hold approach uh, is, is better than trend following?
1: Well, it just seems that uh, since recently, uh, zero the Great Depression, a uh, Great Recession, zero interest rate policy, that it does seem that stocks have had better trends than commodities, for instance, or the currency markets. Okay. And so we live and die by these trends. And if we don't get them, especially long trends, the shorts are pretty good. You know, uh, they will add some diversification. But the big money is going to be made on the long side. And it, and so one of the uh, cornerstones of what we do is there's no opportunity lost by trading things other than stocks, if they all have the same expectation. They should all make about the same amount of money, you know, over a long period of time. Uh, and you just throw in this diversification into your portfolio, longs and shorts, with no opportunity cost whatsoever. And yet, it's difficult now to sort of continue to tell clients that when they see the stocks outperforming, uh, you know.
0: Well, that's a difficult thing for all of us who are not just passive buy and hold um aficionados right i mean every any other strategy besides just a passive buy and hold approach looks you know stupid in in retrospect but that you know af, at the end of any any 10-year you know bull run like we've seen that's going to be the case uh so if you had any any type of strategy any type of hedging or anything or a more of a value discipline you know you you have looked you know foolish uh over the you know uh, in relation to that, that, uh, you know, passive buy and hold approach. Um, you keep mentioning diversification and you've actually tweeted about it a few times recently. What, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on here? How do you think about diversification in terms of, uh, trend following? Is it just, uh, making sure that you use more asset classes and more, more, um, you know, the, the more, the better is that, is that kind of what you're thinking?
1: Definitely more unique asset classes. Um, the the better, you know. Once again, it's back to what I was saying earlier. The the approach needs desperately needs lots of diversification. It's the winning trades, you know. Are we have sixty percent losing trades? We're taking these small losses all the time. We're waiting for outliers, which kind of c- can come and. Quickly, and then uh, we won't see them for a while. So, trade the fewer markets and a fewer unique, un- the f- the less unique group of markets that we trade, we can really have some poor performance. But if we're spreading that risk, and this particular methodology that has those characteristics uh, across lots of different markets, lots of different stocks and uh, currencies and uh, grains and metals, energy uh Other cotton coffee, cocoa sugar uh and interest rates all around the world, then we may have more of a shot uh, at having kind of a reasonable looking equity curve that doesn't have too many ups and downs. we're sort of hostage to uh, not only trading things that are not stocks but needing to trade lots of different instruments to uh cushion and shock absorb. A, a strategy that has uh, you know these negative characteristics of sixty percent losing trades and once in a blue moon a really good uh, performance period
0: well in in terms of diversification too and how it applies to individual investors i've heard some talk about trend following as an asset class unto itself um, that you know we talk about owning stocks and bonds for the long term even if we are you know passive investors and Maybe throwing in some real assets in there too, but do you think of trend following as a separate asset class in that way?
1: Not really. Uh, I mean, I'm a extreme extremist, you know, on this subject, diehard. Uh, so beware of you know listening to my opinions. But no, I mean, I see it as a um, systematic rules. You know, the S and P 500 has its rules and they're applied, and um, stocks that go up kind of start taking on kind of bigger influence in the index, and stocks that go down get smaller as a part of the index. So it's a little trend there maybe, but uh, now I see the trend piece as something that can be applied and should be and needs to be applied to uh, all the assets in a portfolio. Um, One of the things that many people have seen about uh, trend following is that it rehabilitates an asset and, and allows it to, to be put into the portfolio and be profitable even when on a buy-and-hold basis it would not be very profitable. So I'm not sure if cotton or uh, the Swiss franc or the soybeans uh, would be good additions to the portfolio, i.e. make money and offer uh, diversification uh, but if I trend follow them, they magically do, so I'm kind of uh, you know kind of don't look forward to reading articles over and over again about well what happens uh, how's gold uh, you know should I include gold or real estate in my portfolio and of course they'll run the research and the back test, and it doesn't look that great or but I'm like, well, I can put that in your portfolio if, as long as i uh, Trend follow it and it becomes magically a, a great addition to the portfolio. So I think so, you know, with stocks, you know, uh, if I, if I could uh, trend follow the stocks of a portfolio, you know, the return would be about the same and the max drawdown and risk would be materially less.
0: Yeah this is a a great point and it's uh something that you know I I discovered trend following a few years ago and just trend analysis and and it kind of adding that to my uh value based discipline has been a huge benefit to me. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because I you know and I teach a, a value investing course here in town through the community college and um I also teach a part of that uh just a basic trend following approach because a lot of people take the class and say, hey, I don't want to do all this analysis. <laughs> I say, okay, well, if you don't want to do all this analysis, but you want to own stocks, make sure you don't own things that are in a downtrend. And and uh, you know, as long as they're in an uptrend, you may not even need to do all the analysis that I'm teaching you to do. So I think that's something, you know, and when you were talking about individual stocks and applying trend following, you know, there's so many obvious cases where you could look at almost any popular stock and just apply a simple trend following approach whether it's you know when the price is above the 200 day or 50 is above the 200 day you own it and and uh, avoid it uh, otherwise um it just makes such you know perfect sense the thing when i when i show people this they go it can't be that easy it can't be that simple <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: i mean i think applying um a Trend. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and I was thinking. I think that's a good idea. Um, Use your value approach. Um, Try if you can. Not an expert, but it might help to you know put in a max loss. Uh, Take a small loss. Have a have a stop stop out point where you just you know you don't. You're interested in keeping your capital, and you have, may have to buy it again, and uh, that's fine. And maybe time that entry to not trying to buy the very low, but let's uh, makes the 50-day high or the 100-day high, or the 50 goes over the 200. Yeah, you're, you've got your analysis done. It's a value stock, but do you have to buy the low? Because uh, you probably bought it five or ten times before then, and it keeps going down. So obviously, you know. Um, no, nothing like that. It's going to be perfect for timing. So I think combining some of these ideas is a pretty is pretty interesting and probably a good idea. Now, I think putting together a portfolio of different markets and or lots of stocks and uh, determining how you're going to do the money management and the kind of uh, risk parity sizing, it can get sort of complicated where you could sit back and say, wow, the easiest part of this is my entry exit. That's like a third of what I have to get right. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. The entry exit, um, one of the good things about my experience has been we can look at a different entries and exits in a handful or you know, in a certain range of parameters and they all basically make the same amount of money. So you can't really go wrong, can't really go right, they don't make the same amount of money on a monthly basis. But over a twenty-year period, you know that's nice. It's uh, you'd you'd hope that would be the case, uh, but maybe not if you're trying to charge two and twenty. But it's a complex project process to put together the whole portfolio, to choose your leverage and size the positions, and uh, you know stay out of trouble and not not uh, get get it mostly right. But um, I'm all, I'm a I've been on a lot of podcasts and I have. have really strong opinions on how to do it right and some of the things that are not right. Uh, and then I look at my relative performance and it seems like I'm highly correlated with everyone else. So I think, uh, I guess some of these things that I can get really excited about don't matter quite as much as trade these markets, go long, go short and go with the trend and don't talk yourself out of doing a trade because the most important thing is not missing a trade. Uh, 10% 10% of the trade is going to make all the money. You've got to take those trades, dude, and not let the losses and the drawdowns get to you uh, because when you hit a big one, uh, you, that's when you're going to make all your money. That's when you start to realize that all of my filters and all of my analysis and my intellect, uh, none of it's going to be worth a darn if I didn't hit that trend. You know, if the CTAs don't short crude in 2014, around 90 and hold it to 20, uh, you know, that's a huge mistake. We had uh, sold that crude at 90 a half a dozen times before it finally went. So we just banged our head up against the wall, continuing to do it. And people are like, How'd you know the crude was going to 20? <laughs> I was like, I had no idea, you know. It was uh, one of many shorts. And uh, I just held on and stuck to my, my approach, my, uh, my rules.
0: And that's such a critical point to make because you know in in whatever discipline you use, and in value investing, it's the case a lot of times where, uh, you know, you you you, if you use like a stock screener or something, you'll see you know, well, this this company looks ugly, man. That thing's over leveraged, and I don't want to own that thing. And then you read a book like uh, Toby Carlisle's Deep Value, and you find out that the the best performing value stocks are usually the ugliest. You know, they're in the ugly, ugliest business. How do they get so undervalued? Because nobody wants to own them. So when you avoid those things that fit your discipline, you end up a lot of the times missing out on the the biggest winners. Um, but you said you're really opinionated about this stuff, and that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. What? What do you recommend or or what do you think, you know, for the average investor trying to apply trend following in in one respect or another? What do you think is the the simplest, most effective way for them to do that?
1: Mm. Uh, I would say, obviously, uh, build a diverse portfolio. And of stocks, um, interest rates. A commodity etfs let's say maybe gold and silver and crude and uh, I think that uh, maybe you know looking into these etfs as as relates to their liquidity, just stick with the liquid markets and their cost that's always a concern but tr- I would say and this is a radical statement, and I know you can you can have a hundred follow up questions on this, but not you, but other people but no, it's just the way I'm saying it. It's going to be kind of a goofy thing to say, and never anyone else advocate this except my me and my friends and people who trade but um you know, choose your portfolio without regard to how the the markets have performed in the past. yeah strictly diversification so if you choose a stock, a liquid stock, a real estate or Utility or, you know, uh, a few stocks from each industry, let's say. That's right. Just choose them from each industry. And without regard to how well they performed, it's only how well do they decrease my risk. And I would do that with your commodities and your interest rates. And if you could throw some currencies in there as well, just do what I do. But, you know, do it in your IB account or, you know, your, um, your, your typical... Securities account, probably don't want to venture into crazy futures markets without a lot of experience. But that's what I would say is that people's bottom line need to be I have this in my portfolio because of the diversification. Because number one is we've already stipulated we can't predict what the markets are going to do. Uh, It looks like we could. I mean, because we all should have known, we've all told ourselves we should have bought Apple and Amazon. But I think that's a trick that um, our mind plays on us. Now, if they happen to end up in your portfolio, which maybe they would, because they're liquid and they're different, uh, great, because your bottom line was diversification, not trying to guess what's going to happen in the future. Uh, So that's how I do it, and and I've always have done it. And yes, I have a fixed universe of equities that I don't change, and I created that universe um, to go in with my commodities and currencies and interest rates. That I chose all of those markets uh, just based upon diversification and their liquidity, and I of course have to kick a stock out every now and then when it uh, if it goes to zero or goes out of business or it gets bought or whatever or la- it loses liquidity. but my goal would be to sort of trade the same fifty markets or hundred markets for the rest of my life uh, with this methodology, you know totally just. Uh, creating the portfolio based upon uh, diversification,
0: and and in terms of that, uh, you know, I, I I do I love the idea of like a permanent portfolio, um, you know, kind of whether it's an all weather Ray Dalio type of approach or something else. Um, Meb Faber's actually written a very interesting book on the topic called uh, Global Asset Allocation. But I, I assume you would recommend uh, a trade fo- a trend following overlay on those individual securities
1: oh absolutely sorry yeah, yeah of and, course and so, yeah. yeah
0: so and then in terms of what type of you know for the average investor um what type is, is there a kind of a, tr- a trade following methodology that that you would turn people on to, to just introduce them to it
1: uh, well i like um honestly you know i would get my charts out sometimes and i have in the past and i have put up breakouts and moving averages on top of these charts, and especially, let's say, a weekly chart. Um, Massive monster trends will sort of pop out if you use a weekly chart and just see what parameter, a moving average or breakout parameters, sort of keep you in the trend. And uh, so that's what I would do. I would sit there and say, okay, I think, okay, this has been a one or two year trend in this particular market, and... The parameters I'm looking at now seem to not, you know, they keep me in and I don't keep getting knocked out. And and at the very end, it was kind of a painful give back, but, uh, you know, I've I captured most of the profit. And then I'll give uh, those parameters or those ideas to my research staff and I'll say, come back to me and tell me what works. And they'll come back and I won't be too far off just by focusing on the mega trades. There's not that many of them. What parameters? Did 50 by 200 uh, moving average uh, did, or 50 by 250, did that keep me in the trend? Yeah, it kind of did. And, I, and it was a nice long two-year, one-year trend. So, And I didn't give back too much money. So depending upon your capability to actually do the number crunching with Excel or back testing or whatever, you can still get pretty close to the answer, I believe. But it's going to be a long-term approach that uh, mm-hmm. 50 by 200 is pretty darn good.
0: Okay, and you know it, it's uh, uh, interesting for me to I, I love hearing you say, "Look at a weekly chart," because I hear from so many people that are long term investors and they're looking at daily and hourly charts. I'm like, "What are you doing right if you're a, you're in a short- term day trader, that's your time frame, but match your time frame to the, the time frame of the charts you're looking at. Um, and then in terms of 50 and 200, hundred, you're talking about the 50 day moving average versus the 200 day moving average right
1: That's okay. right
0: okay. Um, you know, you mentioned a few of these lessons that you've learned, obviously, since you left uh, the tutelage of Richard Dennis. What was it that made you leave and start your own firm?
1: Oh, it was just the end of the program. Uh, we had so, so much fun there uh, with those uh, guys and being successful and learning from them and being their friend, let's say, hopefully, and then being their employee. I was so, you know, the intellectual growth and uh, it was phenomenal. I mean, uh, that can never be uh, explained, you know, to the degree that it, we had it so good and we never would have left and none of us would have left. We loved the way we were treated. These are the nicest people in the world as well. Amazing humans, uh, love Chicago and great friends. And uh, so managing a couple million, uh, didn't, we didn't know any better. We didn't know that Uh, there was a big world out there and we're going to get out there and start managing hundreds of millions of dollars and um, charging two and 20 used to. So uh, we had no clue, but we would have actually stayed if they hadn't have sort of gotten tired of, you know, all the hassle. And, and uh, and it was a nice run of four years. And we all, we probably averaged 150% a year. Uh, And then, then it sort of ended and, we had track records. We kind of knew to go out there and tone it down and, you know, trying to make 150% a year was not going to work for, to having investors and 50% drawdowns were not a good idea. So it took us a while, but uh, we had to get out on our own and we had a good track record, which we we could show people and people are greedy. They thought that, oh God, you guys are printing money. They'll get, throw money at you and uh, managed futures, business, the managed futures industry was sort of starting or, and uh, yeah, we got pretty fortunate at that point.
0: And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, um, well, the wall street journal just ran an article about the difficulties of trend following strategies in the past couple of years. Um, you, I think you hinted a little bit at it that, you know, commodities just haven't been trending. There's some asset classes that haven't been trending like stocks. Is that really what you attribute the, the, uh, you know, underperformance too lately.
1: As it relates to CTAs and managed futures, I think CTAs. It's, I don't want to be too picky or defensive, uh, but I think CTAs and managed futures—that's a different category. That's a different subject versus trend following. And what's I, like I said earlier, trend following is working great if you tra- if you're only doing it in the stocks, i.e., the only markets that are really trending. And they're trending higher, which is, you know, the long trades are better. So, if you're a CTA, though, and you use trend following, and you're trying to uh, do what you've done for many years and offer diversification in currencies, commodities, and interest rates, plus part of your portfolio would probably be equities as well, then that has not done well because there hasn't been the big trends. It's hard to even know if trend following is that great, or if it's having troubles, or if there's too many people doing it, because the markets have been so bad. But not if you're only trading equities, though. Uh, the trend following has been fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, what has kept uh, kept people in the market, given all the negative press and high valuations, if not just closing your eyes and just following the trend uh, and ignore it, closing your ears maybe and just following the trend and don't listen to anything else. None of the logic that I'm sure is correct about uh, the overvaluation of the market and how it's got to end one of these days. But so I, I do think that CTAs have taken it on the chin, but too bad we didn't all see that we should have a stock only program or a mostly a stock program. From a marketing point of view, AUM-raising point of view, that would have been way more uh, uh, appealing to the majority of clients who uh, some of them may not have a problem with trend following but are sort of maybe skeptical of you know, short commodities and all the crazy markets we try to add in there. I think we're just hard-headed. Uh, Managed Futures was hard-headed, and instead of taking uh, these wonderful uh approach that we had with uh, risk control, taking small losses and paying attention to price only uh, and you know, doing shorts when the trend uh, justified doing some shorts. We tried to just cram down uh, investors' throats what we thought they should want. And if they didn't buy it, well, they just don't understand or we're not doing a good job of explaining it. But the fact of the matter is stocks are great. People prefer stocks and they've done fantastic.
0: What, and haven't commodities been, um, you know, very good for trend following in, in, I mean, years past, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Prior to, uh, you know, 2008, a massive uh, you know, strong up moves in metals and um, <clears throat> energy, of course, many times. Natural gas, many times. My first big trade, uh, having left Richard Dennis in the spring of 88 – was the pretty much the last uh, drought Midwest drought soybeans and corn and wheat. So yeah, hundred percent coffee, amazing. Uh, yep, sugar shorts. Yeah, so yeah, commodities it's just been recently and and uh, you know earlier this year all the commodity markets kind of petered out except for energy. You know, energy is hanging in there, but we had been long base metals, uh, soybeans, and uh, energy and cocoa, uh, cotton. So a lot of these trades have kind of petered out recently uh, with the um, trade war tariffs or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just interesting to me that, um, you know, that uh, I guess you would talk about doing an equity-only strategy when for a long time, you know, commodities have seemingly been, you know, trend following has been a, a wonderful way to, to play the commodity markets. Um have you thought about do it put, putting together an equity only um fund?
1: Well I think that uh technically I think that could be uh not something that I would think would be a safe for the drawdowns could be relatively high, but I do think uh you know fifty percent stocks, two-thirds stocks and let's sprinkle in these wonderful commodities and currencies uh, and interest rates. That could probably be a very viable uh, project where you're increasing your correlation to equities when they're so good, and not putting so much pressure on people to hold on to an underperforming asset uh, class, where stocks are a smaller percentage, uh, but you're still getting some uh, good diversification when the inevitable, you know, February. 2018 happens or 2008 happens uh, you you're still getting some a little bit of diversification just not not as much as you're getting now but you know this is uh you know as soon as I come out with this uh, fund it'll be you know it'll be a good signal for,
0: for right Pete. <laughs> well I was, I was going to ask you, would it be long only or long short
1: oh gosh you
0: know I mean a long short Equity only trend following fund sounds pretty interesting. I mean, you know, uh, who is it? Um, well, I'm spacing on his name, but famous value investor who, you know, created a long short and it's purely quantitative, you know, mutual fund. And, uh, you know, that, that seems like if you did it instead of a quantitative, you know, based on fundamentals, you do, you know, quantitative trend following approach that's long short equity only would be pretty interesting.
1: I agree. Yeah. It's just a question of, uh, finding some shorts sometimes. I think now there's a lot of shorts out there. I, I did a scan of, uh, the 80, a hundred most liquid markets, stock market stocks out there. And I went through the charts and I think 40 of them were in uptrends. So, uh, this was of a few weeks ago. Maybe it's changed, but I don't think that the market is as crazy long as I'd say something like, uh, 2013, I know in 2013, of the stocks that we traded, we had a super year. We made 20%, and over 100% of that came from equities. And, uh, and I, I bet you are invested. We were invested in over 95% of the stocks that we trade. And now we're probably invested in half or a third. So, uh, it's some markets, some, you know, the big stocks are moving, but, uh, it doesn't seem out of control now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a different breadth environment um, than it was back then, or even it was at the end of last year. I'm going to totally change gears here for a second. You have kids, right? I do. And and I think I read somewhere you home you homeschool your kids. Is that is that true?
1: We did back in the day. Okay. Those kids are now in, uh, 29, 31, 32.
0: Okay. Uh, mine are just on the verge of uh, heading out on their own. And and we did homeschool for a few years. But it's also interesting to me because I just interviewed Ben Hunt on the podcast. He's a brilliant guy like yourself. And he homeschools also. And I'm thinking, what is it with all these guys homeschooling? Uh, What was it for you guys that that, that, uh, really appealed to you about it?
1: Well, I think it was something to do. And we had a good community who was encouraging in that regard. Um, I think, uh, so our kids spent not, uh, eight years, uh, and in homeschool and I think they enjoyed it. And, uh, I think, uh, the, then the ninth grade, they did go to regular high school, uh, the, uh, a local prep school in Virginia, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, so they, I think the, one of the lessons was it's that uh it's it was sort of difficult without the rigorous competition you know uh and just sort of doing it with your mom and dad I think the you know, know my daughter probably had a boyfriend after one or two weeks in regular school but getting kind of used to you know a high level uh competitive environment that's you know exist in some of these uh, prep schools and, you know, different public schools around the country, it was something she wasn't used to. So uh, the social aspect, you know, people are always wondering, well, how about the social aspect? I think some kids can adapt to that a lot quicker than they can get used to. uh, You know, when mom and dad grades a paper, (laughs) not quite the same as a teacher.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's something, you know, it's, it's definitely a contrarian decision to, you know, homeschool your kids. And you said you had a, a welcoming environment, uh, community in which to do that. And it's not always the case. It's also seems to me that it, you know, it, it promotes independent thinking, right? Um, it's kind of where it comes from. Uh, do you think there's any, anything, you know, in terms of that decision to homeschool or anything that, that applies to your investment, uh, you know, views or anything like that?
1: I think uh, to some degree, I I like what you just said. I I think that sometimes if the child is very talented and very um, open-minded and not going to be too dependent on, uh, be devastated by the opinion of their peers, then that would be a good thing for them to be able to explore uh, the world. Uh, and they got a great parent, let's say, who's really smart and really maybe was similar. And so, yeah, I think getting out there and exploring the world in an unconventional way um, could really be fun. And you and you would actually get an education that was as good or better and different. Uh, and I think similarly in trading, at least the way we do it, uh, which I have... Uh, mention as many of the aspects of it as I possibly could today, so you're not missing anything when I say this, and that is that uh, you really need to be independent. You really must be someone who doesn't crave positive feedback. You're happy if everyone disagrees with your positions. In fact, you're a little nervous if they don't. Um, You need to have that sort of mentality. Uh, You need to be afraid or a little disappointed if... uh, Everyone is extolling the virtues of trend following. I mean, I don't really like the fact that uh, that we're not we're in drawdowns frequently. or We're not doing as well as the stock market. But you know, the answer to the question, the true/false question I mentioned earlier in the show, is uh, true. A trader should love their losses. It's part of the process. And I love my process. I love my systems. I love my rules. I think everything about them is wonderful. Hell, I put them together. It's 35 years worth of thinking and understanding and researching and testing. And whatever characteristics they may have, it's like with a child, uh, you love them. You know, you love those characteristics. If one of the characteristics is frequent drawdowns, embrace it. It just means that you're doing the right thing, you're following the rules, you're not overriding your process to prevent those losses from coming they you've got to have the good with the bad uh the bad with the good so yeah i think just having a sort of a contrary opinion through and through and being strong i think uh yeah that a child like that would probably do well with homeschool and with trading
0: oh man i love that i think everybody needs to rewind and listen to that with that section over again uh Jerry, we're just about out of time. For people who want to keep up with you and your ideas, where can they, where can they uh, get in touch with that kind of stuff?
1: Uh, most, uh, most of my crazy ideas, I'm uh, feverishly retweeting them, tweeting them on uh, Twitter at rjparkerjr09. And then uh, for the Chesapeake stuff, chesapeakecapital.com and uh, podcast. I'm doing uh, more podcasts than ever before.
0: Well, I appreciate you doing this podcast. This has been a blast. I'm really grateful to you for sharing all your wisdom with us, and uh, I'd love to have you on again sometime in the in the near future.
1: Well, thank you. You're a perfect host. I enjoy I enjoyed it, and I uh, really appreciate it.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.